The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Kara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. We're the co-hosts of the Puberty Podcast. Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Everybody and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod, everyone. I am thrilled about today's episode because this conversation is important. It is necessary. It is needed. It's inspiring. And I'm so grateful to today's guest for taking the time to dig deep emotionally and and with his own energy to educate us, share his story, and really pave the way for so many transgender athletes. Our guest is Skylar Baylar, who is a former NCAA Division I swimmer. And not just any Division I swimmer, but the NCAA's first openly transgender Division I athlete, Skylar Swam for the Harvard men's swimming team. Yes. So not only is Skylar historic for his advocacy work and just existing, but he went to Harvard. So he's, uh, yeah, he's a genius. And you're soon going to find out um, when you hear him speak. I mean, he just eloquent is a word I would use for Skylar. I'm a big fan of Skylar and have been following him for a while. His Instagram is Pink Ray, and it is just a phenomenal account. You should definitely check that out. Skylar has been featured in thousands of publications globally, including ABC News, ESPN, The Washington Post. The list goes on and on. His story is so special. Skylar was assigned female at birth and then transitioned and found an identity that was more aligned with who he was at his core and in his heart. Skylar's going to share that journey with us today and what it was like navigating an eating disorder, the various mental health issues, as well as transitioning and being a division one athlete, you know, navigating that when he was recruited for the women's team and then ended up joining the men's team. We are going to hear all about this today and so much more. Not to mention, Skylar just released his first book, Obi is Man Enough. It's an incredible novel about a Korean-American swimmer who happens to be transgender. Obi was written for all the kids, especially trans kids who don't get to see themselves in books and who wonder if they belong. Skylar wants to remind them that they do. He promises that. And Obi is a reminder of that. So please do check out Skylar's book, Obi is Man Enough, as well as his Instagram and website down in the description today. And buckle up for an amazing podcast episode. Truly, Skylar's great. Before we dive in, quick shout out to Izzy. Izzy, what's up, girl? She left a five-star review saying, this podcast came into my life while I was struggling to recover. My friend recommended it to me. And as an athlete, the amount of motivation and confidence that I'm feeling from just listening to RealPod 
is helping me tremendously. Thank you, Victoria. This is amazing. Izzy, thank you so much. That means the world. I love that a friend sent you RealPod. You guys, that's a brilliant idea. If you're enjoying an episode or you think a guest is phenomenal, hit that share button, text it to friend, family, teammate, bring him into the realness. You know, the more the merrier. Izzy, hope you're having an amazing day and thanks again for your support. If you want to leave me feedback and rate and review the show, that would not only mean the world to me, but it is so helpful for RealPod to keep growing and succeeding to have those reviews. I would love to hear from you. So please head over to iTunes. Takes just a few seconds. You can leave me your feedback and you just might be the shout out on next week's episode. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your shows so you get that automatic download every single Wednesday when we bring you a brand new conversation that is oh so very real. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode with former Division I athlete and transgender activist Skylar Baylor. Skylar, I am so excited to have you. First of all, welcome to RealPod. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I just have been, I've been a big follower of your Instagram for a very long time, but obviously prepping for this, I was listening to you on podcasts and just hearing, you know, your story and the way you talk to people and something that occurred to me, not only listening, but in getting ready to interview you is I wanted to ask if you ever sense people being almost like extra sensitive or like not being able to ask questions or say what they want to say for fear of asking the wrong thing. Do you pick that up from others? And and what are your thoughts on that being on the receiving end? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends on the person. I would say that if you're not transgender or not part of the queer community, I think people do step a little bit more lightly, um, especially if they're trying to be respectful. And I think you can go a little bit too far where they don't know how to ask questions because they get so tripped up on their words. They, they were like, oh, I don't know what to say. Um, I think it comes from a good place. Uh, and I think that that hesitation has good intent. And sometimes the way to impact it is not necessarily to hesitate in asking the question, but hesitate in, in your intent in asking it. And what I mean by that is you shouldn't ask every single question that you have. Right. Right. And if, if you're going into an interview, it's a different situation. But I think what people are, are, are hopefully doing in their heads is recognizing that trans people specifically are asked a lot of invasive questions about their bodies and their selves and their lives. Um, and, and people are trying to be mindful of how best not to offend. And I think that's, again, good intent. But I think an open conversation can also be really productive. Yeah, that's so important to understand. And something that I loved is on another interview, you shared how you are usually not going to take offense or get upset as long as that intention is with good intentions. You understand people don't know the best language to use. Um, and I thought hearing that from you was super cool because we do live in a world now where if people say the wrong thing, they are afraid of being canceled or labeled as something when really they are just trying to, to figure it out. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think that there's, there's really, you know, there's always two sides to the story or, or right. many sides. And right. And I think this one's really complex because a lot of people who have, who have marginalized identities in, in one way, shape or form, trans people being one of those groups uh, are sick of being asked questions. Right. And, and not only sick of being asked questions in the wrong way, but just sick of being asked questions. Right. A lot of people think like, oh my God, how did your parents take it? It's like a really, you know, 
nice, compassionate question. But the reality is like, I just met you. I don't want to tell you the intimate details about my family and like how they react to my transits. Like, can we just be people? Right. Mm-hmm. But, but people do think that, that that's okay to ask or that it's compassionate. And, and so on one side, right on the trans person side, it's, it's exhausting. And it's a ton of emotional labor that we're doing constantly with everybody. And on the other side, right. On the person who wants to learn, like they want to be compassionate. They want to understand like they are curious. Right. So I think that there's, again, there's value to both experiences and that's the reason, honestly, or one of the main reasons I do the work that I do, because I have the energy. Um, I'm also paid to do the work that I do. So it's not just me like <laughs> spitting my energy into the nether, right? I'm, I'm getting paid for the work that I do so that I can educate people so that they don't ask random people in their lives, these questions, right? So that they have answers for me. They have resources, they have website links, they have Instagram posts to look to so that they don't have to ask everybody in their lives, their questions. Um, and what I, what I always say is that it is not every trans person's job to educate you on trans transness, right? It's not mm-hmm. every marginalized person's job to educate you on their marginalized communities, identities. It is, however, my job <laughs> that is quite <laughs> literally my job. And so I try to remind that people of that distinction. And so, you know, for example, here today on RealPod, like I'm happy to answer any questions and I don't want you to feel like you're stumbling through them. And I want listeners to understand that just because you're asking me these questions and I'm comfortable answering does not mean they should repeat them elsewhere. That is, and that is such an important disclaimer. Like, I'm so glad we just kind of got that out in the air because I know too, like I, I see those things, I hear those things, you know, and I, I, in the same way and thinking, you know, can I ask this? Should I ask that? And then I remember, you know, it's not their job to educate us. You know, we learned that in the Black Lives Matter movement. It's not the responsibility of Black women and Black men to educate us. However, in this scenario, you know, it is different. So I appreciate you saying that. And I think that is important for people to understand that we have a really special opportunity today to have an intimate conversation with you. And I don't take that for granted. So thank you. Thank you for the emotional energy and the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, thanks for making a space for it. Well, I think I'll kick things off by just kind of maybe wanting to ask about your experiences as a child. And when you think about your childhood, what comes to mind? Honestly, the first thing I think about is the pool and being underwater swimming. I, I, you know, as a swimmer, I've spent my whole life uh, in the pool and growing up in the water. And I've always felt more comfortable there. I think especially when I struggled with, with body issues of any kind, whether that be body image or, or gender dysphoria, right? Transness and gender, the water was just a place I could just be, I could just be in the water. I, I remember that as a part of my childhood a lot. You mentioned gender dysphoria, which is something I've been learning through your content. Could you provide some more context on that? Yeah, of course. So gender dysphoria is clinically significant distress or discomfort that a person experiences due to the incongruence of their gender identity, so who they are, and their gender assigned at birth, what everybody told them they are, right? So for example, when I was born, I was assigned a female at birth. The doctors looked at me and said, this is a girl. And then for my entire childhood, everybody said, this is a girl. And at some point I was like, hold on, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And the the incongruence, right, of those two things can uh, sometimes um, cause distress for people. And I say clinically significant because it is considered uh, a mental health disorder. It's in the DSM-5, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And there's a lot of issues in the history of mental health and and trans people and queer people. Dysphoria is the intent of of adding it as dysphoria is different from before when it was gender identity disorder, because it used to be that the actual being transgender was a disorder, right? Gender identity disorder. And now it's gender dysphoria, the distress that a lot of trans people experience. That's the disorder rather than being transgender, right? So, yeah. Which is an important difference because transgender people, identifying people don't want to be labeled as they are mentally ill, right? 
I think the main point is to understand that being transgender is not an illness, rather the incongruence that a lot of trans people experience can produce clinically significant distress, right? Like depression, like anxiety. And those are things that you did experience as a child when you were experiencing mental health issues for the first time, looking back, were you guys trying to figure out what the, like your parents and your therapist, what was causing the the stress and the anxiousness and the depression? Or did you secretly know you, you didn't feel in alignment with your body? Uh, you know, I think a combination of it, I I think I knew I didn't feel in alignment with my body, but I didn't have the words to explain why. And, and what I mean by that is I, I remember feeling from a very young age, like I, I know I, I quote, want to be a boy because that was the only language I had. I didn't know I could be right. (laughs) Um, I was told I was a girl and I was like, gosh, well, that doesn't feel right, but I don't know any other language. So I knew that, but I didn't really know that I could attach it right in, in the same ways to words of like, actually, this doesn't align with me. And then I developed an eating disorder in high school. And there's a number of different factors that contributed to that, including, you know, um, my, my childhood, my upbringing, like, you know, attitudes around food, the world and society, diet culture. Being just, like, being just a person growing up in diet culture. Exactly. <laughs> and especially as somebody assigned female at birth, right? Uh, so I think there's a lot of um, factors that contributed, but then there's also a really extreme disconnect with my body that I didn't know how to explain. And the language I was given was, oh, like, you know, it's about you like your body or you don't like your body, whatever the same kind of, quote, all girls feel. But it, it wasn't that, right? And it wasn't until I, I went to treatment, which was a privilege in many ways to be able to have access to treatment, to have insurance to pay sort of all kind of stuff. And I don't ever want to be dismissive of that. Um, but treatment was really the place where I was like, gosh, this is it. And I, I finally was able to discover I'm, I'm transgender and the issue sort of underlying is gender and not other things. When you use the language assigned female at birth, there are obviously people who will think assigned female, you were a female, you know, whether they say it was the genetics or the biology. Can you help us understand why the term assigned female at birth is the better way to describe it. Sure. Yeah. So what happens when a baby is born, there's two, two ways people determine the gender of the child. They do uh, uh, an ultrasound, right? And they see if it has a penis essentially. And if it does, they say, oh, it's a boy. And if it doesn't, they say it's a girl. Um, and then the other way is when it's born, they look at the genitals and they see, oh, is it a boy or a girl in that way? Um, but it's solely based on the presence or absence of a penis and specifically the length of the penis, right? Because if it's in between a certain length, they actually will sometimes perform surgery to manipulate the length of the penis to make it shorter, to make it a clitoris, or they decide it's long enough, it can be a penis. But it's really that simple. And the reason I'm bringing in surgery is because there's a lot of issues with folks who are intersex, so born somewhere in between, right? Um, literally intersex, who have actually what's called genital mutilation because their, their bodies are, are um, cut, essentially perform surgery before they have any ability to consent or share about their gender identity. And sometimes this results in uh, infertility and sterility, sometimes involve, in, uh, results in completely getting rid of any kind of sensation down there. It can really mess up some, some folks. I just saw intersex on your page today. And it's right when you have outward genitalia that doesn't match the internal. So is it, it it's complex. In, it, most people would define intersex as um, anybody, anybody's um, basically sexual anatomy or sexual reproductive organs that don't match these classical buckets of, of male and female. Right. Um, and there's many main, there's many components of biological sex. And the reason I pushed back on your definition was internal versus external. It is, it's much more complex than that. Um, okay. sometimes it's about hormones. Sometimes it's about having an extra chromosome. Uh, so there's a lot of that, you know, there's people mostly hear about X, Y, and XX chromosomes, but there's also XXY, XYY, XXX, and just X. 
Um, there's lots of hormonal differences, hormonal receptor differences. Like there's just a lot going on within biological sex that most people don't know anything about. So going back to your original question about birth and assignment, when somebody's born, the only thing they're looking at is that external genitalia factor. They're not actually chromosome typing the, the baby. They're not looking at hormones. They're not looking at hormone receptors. They're not looking at internal genitalia. They, they normally, normally don't do any of those things. They're just looking at the length of the penis slash clitoris, which come from the same, um, it's called a genital tubercle, but at the same origin, basically in, in growth. So I'm getting probably too far into the science. My point is that it's really a non-accurate way of looking at things. And so what the reason we say assigned is we look at that length, the doctor looks at length, and then they assign a gender to the kid. And what they're actually doing in reality is saying, hey, this person has this length of a penis <laughs> or this shortness of a clitoris or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's all they're doing. And we're assuming that that person will grow up and be a woman or grow up and be a man. And sometimes, I mean, statistically speaking, it's not a terrible assumption, but it is an assignment right? It's not actually a determination of one's gender because the kid can't even speak. They can't tell you their gender. On that same note, just thinking back on my childhood, you know, I had earrings before I could talk. I was in dresses before I could walk. And that ended up being how I feel comfortable and I identify now. But looking back, there are so many things in this world that tell you what you are supposed to be and how you're supposed to act. And it seems like while you had this assignment and you were presenting as a female, that did not fulfill you or, or make you feel like you were actually being who you wanted to be. And so on top of that, though, being an athlete is a whole other component and a competitive athlete. I played volleyball at USC, so I know what it's like to play at that level. And being a high school athlete comes along with its own bucket of stress and pressure. And what was it like to kind of have to deal with and understand what was going on with your mental health and your personal thoughts while also trying to get recruited and play at the division one level. Difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I would say that I think this probably will resonate with anybody else who's an athlete is I, I was good at compartmentalizing and ignoring, right? I think that um, athletes, especially elite athletes are probably uniquely poised to ignore stress because we have to, in order to compete at high levels, right? We have to be able to like, well, let's put that aside. So I think that in my high school experience, I kind of was just like, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, I'm getting good grades. I'm getting all these gold medals. I'm doing really well in the pool. It doesn't matter if I'm miserable. It doesn't matter if I don't understand, you know, who I'm supposed to be like, just focus, focus, focus. Right. Um, and I focused to my own detriment, right. I, I drove myself into a hole with mental health issues. And that's why I ended up having to take a gap year between high school and college to go to that residential treatment center. So, you know, I think I wouldn't recommend that. I think that taking breaks for mental health, like I think had I taken a, a year in high school to um, take a pause and really like deal with my mental health then, and then, you know, graduated a year later, I think that might've been more beneficial to me. And I probably would have transitioned earlier as well. And that would have also been beneficial to me. So I, I think all I guess I'm trying to say is mental health is so important and, and we don't, um, we as a community and definitely not as an athletic community don't value it the way I think we should. And your desire to achieve and be an amazing athlete and get into Harvard, which by the way, like just even saying, if someone says where do you go to college, there's no humble way to say Harvard. Like, you know, it just comes <laughs> out or it's just, it is piercing in your, and then people are just like, whoa, they like, don't even know what to say after yeah. that because it's such an incredible institution. So, you know, you're box checking of this amazing school and, and this, this, and that. And I know you talk about this a lot that you were so focused on the paper accomplishments and ignoring kind of the process of what was happening in your life. So I actually didn't know this, but you went to treatment to explore transitioning before Harvard. 
Yeah, so I, I didn't go to explore transitioning. I so I was really struggling throughout high school, and I got to my end of my senior year. Had been to the hospital a couple of times for the mental health issues that I was having, and my therapist was like, "You, this isn't it. You need to take a break. You need to go to residential treatment. One hour of therapy a week, which is what I was doing at the time, is not enough. You need residential treatment, twelve hours a day, every day therapy." take a gap year from Harvard and figure out this stuff. My eating disorder was my number one issue. Do that. And then you can go to college. And I, you know, that was, that was such a hard place to be. I mean, it was literally like a month before my graduation. I had been at the school K through 12. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to leave my whole life behind. I'm going to, how do what I tell my coaches, right? What do I tell people at Harvard? But I also, there was something that sort of, I remember this like sinking feeling after that meeting being like, you're right. Like, I'm not getting any better on my own. I don't want to be miserable. I have no desire to keep living my life this way. Cause if I do, I'm not going to keep living my life. Right. It was that kind of gravity, I suppose. And so I, yeah, I took the gap year and so glad I did it save my life. So you go to this treatment center for your eating disorder. What begins to unravel in these therapy sessions? So it's different kinds of therapy. You meet at this specific treatment center. It's a place called Oliver Pyatt Centers in Miami, Florida. And uh, they were one of the few places that would allow me to also eventually work in athletics. A lot of eating disorder places don't do that. And for me, that was obviously really, really important. The first section is residential. And basically, you first of all, you live with what, what are called recovery coaches the whole time. They're people kind of walking you through your experience. You're going to groups all day. Um, you eat meals with your like little milieu of people. So you're making sure that you're you know, doing therapy during meals as well. Well, and when I say therapy, I mean, it's not sitting in like talking through talk therapy all the time, but it's like learning skills to help you with your recovery. Um, and then you have like actual sort of sit down one-on-one therapy four times a week with your therapist. There's a lot of therapy. Um, it's, it, it, you know, it feels, I was there for 131 days, which is five months ish. Um, and the first, uh, three months of it was the, it's a sort of the residential one. And then I did like a step down program. Um, and it's a lot, I mean, it felt like a year, but it's only three months. Wow. What was the moment where you either uttered the words to a therapist or they led you to it? So for me, there was a specific moment when I I realized that the discomfort that I was having with my body was probably not based in actually size or whether or not I liked my body, but rather that my body didn't, didn't seem like the right gender to me. And in that moment, I had this like massive unraveling in my head where I was like, oh my God, no, I'm transgender. And then the next line literally writes, no, I'm not transgender. I can't be transgender. This is not true. I'm not doing this. Um, there's a journal entry that, that chronicles this whole thing. And I think it's hilarious to go back and, and think about, but there's a lot of fear baked into that. But my, my therapists were really great um, in listening between the lines. And I think that through the therapy, when we learned more about, they, they asked me questions like, when were you most comfortable? And I always went back to my childhood, which is not unique, by the way, for people experiencing eating disorders or depression. A lot of people you know, go back to their childhood days. But for me, I think that there's something people noticed about how I talked about my gender. Um, and how comfortable I was. And when I had short hair, as I had short hair as a, as a kid, I looked very much like every other boy. I wore boys clothes, people gendered me as male. Um, so I think a combination of those things led my treatment team to, to talk more to, to me about gender. Because in puberty, you start to develop boobs and develop curves and get your period. And that's like what they call becoming a woman. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting point is you were a tomboy and then eventually it got to a point where you have boobs and you can't really hide the fact that your body is changing. Sure. And I think it's also, it, it, you know, hide is about externality, which is a factor, but it was also about me, right? Like when I looked in the mirror, when I felt like felt in my body, I didn't feel congruent. I felt really disconnected. 
Um, it always felt like my, my chest, my breasts were something that sort of grew on me as opposed to a part of me. That's really powerful to hear. Something that I wanted to ask you in prepping for this was about fully realizing that this is what you always were and accepting that. And you just said yourself that your gut reaction was to deny. No, I can't. I can't be that. Obviously, with realizing who you really are at your core and then telling your friends and family and taking action in your life to whether it's get top surgery or begin taking hormones, I I don't want to say it's irreversible, but it definitely does feel like almost like a big decision that you want to be very sure about. What was it like for you to get to that point? I think it's different for different people. So I want to start with a disclaimer that this is my experience. My answer is my experience and can't speak for everybody. But for me, I think um, top surgery was, was a, as soon as I learned it was a thing, I was like, that's, that's for me. Like I need that. Um, I remember not wanting to have breasts since before I even had them right before my, my mom told me at one point in my childhood, Hey, you're going to grow up and you're going to go through puberty and you're going to, you know, get breasts and hips and all these things. And I was like, no, I'm not. And she was like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, you are. And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and I had this like, so I remember feeling so like so much conviction on that. I was like, I'm not going to do that as if I could control it. And so then when it happened, it was that much more distressing, you know? Um, so top surgery was something that I, that I knew very clearly that I wanted. It was more the sort of navigating the details of getting it. Testosterone was a little bit more confusing to me. And there's, there's a sort of a main reason why, and that's sports, right? If I was, was to start testosterone, I was leaving the women's team behind. And, and what did that mean? Did that mean I was leaving all of something behind? Did that mean that I was competing for the men's team? And if I was doing that, what did that mean? Um, so I think testosterone was a much more loaded question that I did absolutely weigh the pros and cons. So let's explore that. I mean, you had to call your Harvard coach and you were going after this year gap to school. Did you start on the women's team? Yeah. So I did not start on the women's team basically. So I went to treatment and that was the first five months of my gap year. So it takes us basically to October of 2014. And I I told my coach somewhere when I was in treatment that I'm transgender, I was very open with her and she was very like, okay, we'll figure this out. I don't know what to do, but we'll figure this out. Um, and initially I was going to stay on the women's team. It, it was like, all right, this is just an identity. You don't have to do anything, whatever, stay on the women's team. But then it became clear that I wanted just to, to take steps in my life to be myself. Right. So I started using he, him, his male pronouns in some social situations. I was getting, I was wearing more boys and men's clothes. I had gotten a short haircut that made me feel more comfortable, right. Walking into this sort of more, um, comfortable masculine presentation of myself. And my coach was like, how are you going to do this? And also be on the women's team. And it wasn't that she, I didn't feel pressure from her. It was more like a literally, how are you going to do this? But over that, that kind of next three or four months, it, we ended up talking to the men's coach, rather Steph, the women's coach, talked to the men's coach and Kevin, the men's coach was like, why doesn't Skyler swim for me? You know, if he's a guy and he wants to swim here and he's already into Harvard, like why wouldn't he swim for the men's swim team? Right. Which sounds like a no brainer, but of course it's far more complicated and amazing that he said that than, than how simple I just made it. And initially actually I rejected it. I said, no. I said, I'm going to stay on the women's team. I'm not ready for that. That's too scary. I'm, I worked my whole life to be this amazing, you know, swimmer competing as female. So I can't give that all up just because of being happy. Right. And that's because you thought that obviously swimming alongside men would be a whole different ball game competitively. That, and it was terrifying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, I had only ever competed as female and I had never had to measure up against 40 college age D1 men's athletes before I was just barely walking through my own masculinity in myself, you know, 
not even to speak of trying to walk next to a, another man in my masculinity. So it was just terrifying. Uh, and I felt really alone. It was something else that something, something else had not done before. So I said, no, initially. Um, and then I kept thinking about it. Right. Of course. And they left the door open. They were like, you can decide up until when we start school. Basically, it doesn't matter because it's just one of the swim teams. Um, so I spent more time with the men's team. And after finding myself far more comfortable with them than I thought, I decided to swim for the men's team. Um, but it took a lot, right? Because it ended up being that I that I was giving up all those potential accolades and accomplishments on the women's side, that I was going to do something somebody else, somebody else had not done before, that I was going to be alone in this, that I was going to be having to kind of discover my masculinity alongside a men's D1 team, right? It wasn't just I was going to learn who I was. I was going to have to do it on a men's D1 swim team, right? That felt terrifying. But I decided that that risk was worth it for my own happiness and, and alignment. Something to point out too is obviously how supportive your parents have had been, your coach, both coaches had been, the men's swimmers had been. And I know that's probably a point people bring up of like, I can't believe everyone was so supportive as <laughs> if like, we are almost like weirdly hoping that the norm is like that you're going to be rejected. <laughs> so I just want to point out how awesome it is that maybe there was a fear of this group won't accept me. Well, the coaches won't, the men's coach, the players. And everyone was just like, yeah, you're, you're a guy be, be on the team with us. And you're right. You know, I'm sure you talk about how that's not everyone's experience, but I think it is beautiful to start normalizing this being the experience. Sure. Totally. And I, and I think, um, there's a lot to be said about that. So I want to, I have a couple of thoughts. The first thing is that there's a lot of privilege that I have and it's, it's privilege of luck, honestly, in this situation, right? I was lucky that Kevin, the men's coach had taken a class on trans people. He had taken a gender, uh, one-on-one class. And so he know, he knew about trans people. I was lucky that the women's coach is just a kind person who was like, I don't know anything about trans people, but let's do this. Right. Um, and then I was lucky that most of the men's team, uh, was like, yeah, let's do this. Sure. Why not? Right. Is Skylar going to keep up? Cause they're, main concern was, are you going to keep up in practice? <laughs> um, and are you going to get good grades? Cause our GPA was the number one team in the country for a couple of years. So I was like, sure. Oh like, my that's, that's like not an, that's a non-issue for me. Like, let's do that. But there were difficulties, right? Just because everybody was accepting doesn't mean rather just because everybody was excited to have me on the team. Doesn't mean that they were all like understanding everything. Doesn't mean there weren't bumps. Doesn't mean there weren't slights here and there. So I dealt with a lot my first year, especially. And the reason I think, and I, I like to share this because I have no agency over the luck, right? But I have agency over how I showed up in the space. And I made sure that everybody had resources to learn about trans people. And I was like, if you have questions, here's where you can learn. If you have questions, you can ask me. I don't think it's everybody's responsibility, like I said earlier, to educate everybody. But I decided that it was better for me to say, hey, you can ask me questions than to have them talk amongst themselves or ask Google because Google can be very mean. And I think that created a much more uh, open environment for everybody involved that allowed us to have more compassion for each other. And for me to actually understand that they were also going through their own shit, <laughs> excuse my right. language, but I think it's so important to recognize we were all on a men's team for the first time, right? Like, especially, sorry, not on a men's team, men's team college for the first time where we're all just starting college, the freshmen, especially, right? And there's so much going on there. There's so much like posturing and toxic masculinity and like trying to figure out who you are on this team. And I think I really had to take a step back and see it for what it was as opposed to taking anything personally. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there, there's also my own agency and I don't, I want, I'm proud of how I navigate that space. And I think it impacted how well people received me as well. And I share that one to be proud of my own, my own efforts. And also too, to say that the people do have agency. It's not just luck. It's how you show up in the space as well. 
Definitely. And yeah, I'm sure that that really did create a open environment where because teammates at the end of the day, you know, you want to feel like you and your teammates all have some sort of almost like brotherhood, sisterhood, like familial bond, Mm -hmm. which can really help, you know, make the group uh, tight. So when you were now taking these steps and really embracing your manhood, did you feel pressure on that whole note of toxic masculinity to be like, oh, well, I got to be a man. So I got to like talk this way and be tough this way. And like, you know, what was that like? Sure. The short answer is yes, of course. I had that, I felt that pressure. And um, there were a couple of specific moments that I remember feeling like, oh, this is a time to check myself. And I, I, I can speak to one specifically. This was not on the team. It was a, a different group of guys I was hanging out with. And and there was one of the guys I respect in the group, sort of I don't know, a social leader, if you will, made a really shitty joke. Uh, it was a like a, a rape-centered joke. And, and I was just like not having it. And everybody laughed. And I kind of was like, really? Like, did you have to, did you really have to do that? Right. And, and I have been the subject of those jokes before, right. Having presented my life as a, as a woman before I've been the subject of misogyny. And now as I've transitioned, I'm now expected to be an accomplice in misogyny. And so in that moment, I was like, I, I can't even deal with it. So I left actually, I left and I didn't know what to do. I left and I, and I, this, the guy actually came after me because um, he noticed that I had left and he came by and he was like, what happened? Why did you leave? Like, are you okay? You know, um, like I said, this guy respected and I liked, and so that's why I was even more disappointed. And he said to, and, and I said to him, I really didn't like that joke. It was really bad. Um, he's like, oh no, you didn't understand. Like, let me explain it to you. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> No, you don't need to explain it to me. I'm yeah, like, you're like, um, I get it. It's, it's I got bad. it and it's bad. And um, and I had to walk him through it. I said, listen, what would you have? He was like, okay, well, I don't get it. Like, it's just really funny. We're just joking around, Skyler. And I was like, okay, but it's not just a joke because people listen to you and, and you're respected and this is about culture, right? And every little thing is what culture is made out of. And I said to him, if somebody said that joke, again, it was a misogynistic, rape-centric joke, so I'm not going to repeat it, but you can imagine. Um, I said, if somebody said that about your sister, what would you do? And he said, well, I would absolutely be furious. And I was like, well, what if somebody said that about your mother? And he was like, well, I'd be, no, well, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, good, good reaction. And why does a woman have to be your mother or your sister or your girlfriend to be respected? And he was like, hmm, that's a good one. And he like really sat there thinking about it. I'm thinking, oh my God, this is like... <laughs> So simple, but, um, but he really sat there to his credit, thinking about it. He didn't get defensive. He was like really trying to listen to me. And he said, after a while, he was like, Skylar, you know, this makes sense, but we didn't all grow up like you did, right? We didn't have the same experience that you did. We haven't felt misogyny like you did. He didn't say it in these words, but this is what he was saying. And I was like, that's true. I get that. And more than half of the world is women. So you better start catching up. He's like, you're right. Mm. Okay. And he just, you know, he just thought about it. And again, to his credit, he just listened. And I thought, I think about that often, that interaction, because it was a moment when I could have just stepped in and laughed and got my masculinity card. Right. Um, Ooh, it could have, yeah. it could have been a moment when I degraded myself by doing that, because again, I've been the object of that. Why would I sit in the group of guys and laugh? But I will say I've had moments in, in, in groups of guys where I felt the urge to laugh or to participate in some sort of toxic masculinity because I want to feel a part of things. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel a part of things, but there is something wrong with leaving my morality behind to do so. And so that's the moment I've had to figure out how do I interact with this moment in order to change other guys? Because I don't, I feel like I have a really big responsibility in those moments to affect change because I do have my masculinity card now, actually, if there is one, <laughs> um, where guys <laughs> see me as another guy. Um, and that allows me to say, hey, 
this isn't okay. And I have an, a, an extra step of privilege being sort of in the circle at the table, if you will, to then say, no, that's not okay. We don't do that. Right. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Not only responsibility, but like it's opportunity. Yeah. Um, oh, to- access. Yeah, to change the the course of, of what's going to happen. And I totally get why you think back on that as a moment that you could have really like, I mean, I can imagine just the intimidation in gen- the intimidation in general. And everyone wants to feel included and a part of something. And I think we can all think back on a time where we did laugh at something or didn't stick up for something because we wanted to be with the cool kids or we wanted to hang for a second. It's a really human experience. It's not, it's not weird to feel that way, but it is a responsibility to act against it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. Well, that's a perfect example of, did you feel pressure to, to, you know, fall into the trap of toxic masculinity? So did you take hormone pills and start to begin that process? What are the rules? I mean, I almost should know being a former NCAA athlete, but what was, what were the rules like with your transition and also being eligible? Yeah. So a couple of things. The first thing is that there, there is um, already a policy and it's been in place since I think 2011, I want to say um, for the inclusion of transgender athletes in the NCAA it was based off of a guy named Kai alums who came out in 2010, played women's basketball at GW university in DC. Um, and then, and then there was another one, uh, I, I think, their name was Keelan. Anyways, my point is there were trans people who came before me who competed in the gender identity they were assigned and not like what I did, which is the gender identity I actually identify with, um, that this, these rules are built out of. And I'm so thankful for the people who came before me who were charting that path. Um, the rules are split, split into two separate things. One is assigned female at birth like me, and the other is assigned male at birth, not like me. Um, if you're, all of it is basically about hormones. So if you're assigned female at birth, you can compete on either team if you don't have medical, medical interventions. If you don't take hormones, you can compete on the women's team, you can compete on the men's team, nobody cares, right? Because it doesn't, doesn't matter. You have like lesser hormones than the average male and you have the same hormones as the average woman. If you take hormones, which is what I did, you must compete as male. You can't stay on the women's team and take hormones. You must compete as male and you prove with your labs, uh, usually two to three times a season to say, hey, my hormone levels are at an average male level or below. Nobody cares if it's below, but you can't go above that average male level. And it's, it's a range. So you have like plenty of leeway to, to kind of be in that range, which every um, male athlete has that, that, that range. So that's me. Um, I take hormones. It's not a pill. Actually, your liver cannot uh, digest testosterone. So it's an injection. Um, you can also take it from like patches that you put on your skin. Um, but I take those, um, I take the, the, the shots and then the assigned male at birth. So the opposite of me is again about hormones. If you have not had hormone interventions, you have to compete as male, right? So testosterone levels are at an average male level. You have to compete as male. And if you can prove that they've been documented one year of hormone suppression, then you can compete as female. So competing as female, I wanted to talk about that with you because I am, I'll be honest, I'm doing my best to understand. I want to consider myself an ally and someone who wants every single human to be who they want to be in this world. And I will respect that to, to the T on the surface level. If I do think about a transgender person had joined my volleyball team at USC and assuming they are jumping out of the gym, they are stronger than all of us. They are faster than all of us. It would be hard to, to, I I hate to say the word accept, but the same way you talked about before, if you joined the men's team, you felt like it would be losing everything you'd worked for. There is a discrepancy, those born with like the traditional male hormones versus those born with traditional female hormones. So could you please share with me 
or anyone who's feeling this way, why it would be okay for a transgender woman to join the USC volleyball team per se. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's be specific so we can make it personal for you and people like examples. Um, so in short, first thing I always start with when we talk about this and I, I, do, this, I do this a lot, it's not a novel topic. Um, trans women are women, right? Trans girls are girls. And so we yes. always start when we have these conversations with making sure that we're calling them women, we're calling them girls. The reason I start with that is because people will be like, well, biological boys, blah, 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 or, you know, but men don't belong to women's team. So the first thing is that trans women are women, trans girls are girls. If you want to talk about biological differences, we talk about that. People with high testosterone, right? Or a woman who has high testosterone or somebody who has a penis, if that's really what you're concerned about. Now, I want to make a quick note on the penis thing. If we're talking about genitals, we are not in the same arena because there is nobody who plays sports with their genitals. So it does not matter if you have a penis. <laughs> so I want to just yes. start with that because, and the reason that this, you, you laugh, everybody, everybody laughs when I say that. However, there are many states that are proposing genital exams for young girls to be able to compete in sports. Exactly. You made a face of like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Yes. There are several states that are proposing genital exams for young girls to prove that they are girls to be able to compete. Um, this is completely ridiculous. It is not about fairness. It is not about anything that is legal. It is about pedophilia, to be honest, and control, right? Because nobody plays sports with a penis. To interject, I love that you're correcting me and clarifying these things. Please do that all day long because I think <laughs> this is important for people listening. Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, as we move forward, so trans girls and girl sport. The, the, the thing that people get stuck on, and I want to make this note, and then we'll talk about USC in a second and your specific, like, proposition, which I think is a great specific example. Most of the conversations right now, people will say, oh, professional sports, oh, the Olympics, oh, like college sports, right? Most athletes are not ever going to make it to the Olympics. They're not ever going to be a professional athlete. And they are not even probably going to go to the NCAA because only like two to 5% of athletes go to college sports. Most people who play sports are who? Children, right? And what are children playing sports for? For fun. And also before the age of puberty, there are no biological differences to speak of that are that are really important in sports, except for the present or absence of a penis. And again, nobody plays sports with their penis. So I noted when you said um, something about how people are born, born with traditional male hormones or born with traditional female hormones, actually at birth, there's no presence of high hormones at all. There are hormones sometimes in utero, but there's no presence in your body. Like you don't have different levels of hormones when you're born. Hormone differences come in puberty. So for the most part, kids don't actually have significant biological differences. Um, and when they get to any sort of elite level, then they have to prove their hormone levels are fair for that level at, at the same as the NCAA. So interesting. So then you're saying basically all kids to the age 11, let's say 11 or 12 are on even playing field, no matter what. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's new information to me. So I'm glad to learn that. Yeah. And so, and good. So here, let's, let's talk about that for a second. So most people assume that boys are better at sports, right? And what's happening there? Sexism. Ooh, yep. Right? So what's happening there is sex and people automatically think, most people, and actually many women, um, think that, oh, well, boys are just better at sports. That's not actually true until after puberty starts and only when puberty really sets in. So you're really thinking about Tanner to, to get really technical, Tanner stage two of puberty, which is more like 12, 13, 14. And for boys, even later, because boys' puberty usually takes on later. Um, so we're, we're not seeing significant biological differences until that later time. So when you're a kid, if you're, if you're thinking, oh, boys are just better at sports, it's actually because boys have access to sports because boys, parents play sports with them because boys are put in sports because boys are told that they're good at sports and that they can play sports, which is all sexism, <laughs> right? It's not actually yeah. about ability. And, and I have a, a really numerical way to prove this, um, in swimming. So for, for, um, for I did up until age, like eight or nine, the girls cuts, right? Your qualifying times for any um, higher level meet, the girls cuts are faster. They switch at 
uh, like 11, 12, basically 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, and why is that? Because girls pay attention more <laughs> because girls are told they must. And what's happening there? Sexism. Because they said, you have to pay attention. Oh, boys will just be boys. They won't pay attention. So girls are actually usually better when they're younger at certain sports because they're told they have to be, again, because they're obedient, because they pay attention, because whatever, whatever. Why? Not because any body differences, because of sexism. Um, okay, so that's just like a horizon or a background, rather, context. We all need to start from there is so much sexism in sports as it is. Wow. I can't believe that I'm discovering this for the first time being a retired at like ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you, Skylar, totally. for, for something I should have learned in third grade. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, everybody should have learned that one. So that's the first thing. Boys are not automatically better at sports until actually testosterone comes in. And even then, I want to say that if you're like a 15 year old assigned female at birth summer, like me and some random, you know, guy comes in to swim against you, they're not going to be better. I promise. <laughs> um, they're not automatically better. You actually have to work hard at things to be really good. All right. One, two, let's go to your USC stuff. So now let's talk, we're talking about adults. First of all, it's really important to recognize the difference children and for children, there should not be these rules. Children should play whatever sports they want to play. If they get to an elite level, then we can talk, but most kids are not an elite level. Kids are just playing t-ball and soccer with their friends. And it does not matter what they were assigned at birth for NCAA sports, different arena, right? Totally different arena. People are playing for a, a really big meaning. And also they have gone through puberty <laughs> um, and they're, they're older usually. Okay. So that's the first thing, different arena. The second thing is that we go back to the rules. You cannot, you said jumping out of the gym, stronger, better, faster, whatever. You cannot just say I'm a woman and waltz onto a woman's team. You have to be on hormone suppressants for one documented year. And what do these do? They make you feel like shit because they bring your hormone levels down. Um, they suppress your testosterone. And I know many trans women have gone through that. It's not a fun process, especially as a young athlete. It's like doing the opposite of getting better. Your muscles atrophy, your physiology decreases, your, your uh, red blood cell count decreases, um, your endurance decreases. So your body shifts due to the lowering testosterone levels. And you're, you, have, you have to do that for a whole year so that your body adapts to that lower level of testosterone and physiologically speaking. When I say adapts, I mean worsens, right? Lessens in athletic ability. Then you are allowed to, to compete on a women's team. So that's the first thing people forget. Even when I go over the rules, people are like, but, 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 you know, whatever. A whole year of this testosterone suppression, which is really important to note. To even call myself out here, you know, I think the generic example, which is just horrible, but is I'm just imagining someone on the men's team realizing that that is how they feel most aligned and then coming over and like joining the team the next week when you're telling me that that's not at all what's going to happen. It's not allowed. You can't like, it's like, right. you can't do that. <laughs> which is so, yeah, so important to know. Okay. So I cut you off. Sorry. So after a okay. year of of being on these suppressants. Yeah. So you can't, the first thing is you cannot just, people have this idea that, they, that everybody's going to decide they're a woman and jump onto the women's team. They can't do that. First of all, it's not a decision. And second of all, nobody's going to do that. Third of all, people are like, oh, but men are going to do that so they can win women's sports. And do they know anything about toxic masculinity? Like no man is going to think that he's a really great, like ego booster to compete <laughs> on a women's team. Right? right. So think about that for a second too. All right. Next thing people are like, okay, so fine. This person has, you know, gone through testosterone suppression, but they're still taller. Their hands are still bigger, whatever, whatever, right? They're better at sports because X, Y, and Z. To which I say, I'll actually give you a really specific example. I was at a school um, before the pandemic giving a speech to only athletes. It was a 300, 300 athletes in a room, and you know, about half of them were women. And I said, okay, I, I got asked this question that you just asked me. And I said, all the women in, in the room, please stand up. You're a woman athlete, stand up. So you know, half the room stood up. And I said, great. If you are shorter than five, four, sit down. Like two people sat down. Then I said, if you're shorter than five, six, you know, average height, sit down, keep going. Right. And at, when I got to six foot, we still had probably like 20 people standing. Right. 
And then I said, okay, now 6'1", 6'3", you know, right, et cetera. And there were still people standing up till 6'4", which is way higher, almost a foot higher than the average woman. And I said, okay, great. So you all can sit down now. But none of you are trans, just statistically speaking, none of you are trans and also I probably would know you. <laughs> now, you're all way taller. Is it unfair that you're taller? Heck yeah. <laughs> it's, it is an advantage. You're taller, you can reach over your volleyball net, you can reach over. It's way better, right? It's better for you. And that's why volleyball teams are actually all taller than average. But is it, is it unfair to the point where we disqualify people? No. It's considered an advantage for sure, but nobody disqualifies anybody for just being tall. As soon as they are trans, it's considered unfair and of something that is you know, worthy of disqualification. But my point is that there is biological difference everywhere, especially in sports. And in fact, those biological differences do offer advantages sometimes in sports, and sometimes they offer disadvantages. There are tall people who are bad at sports. There are short people right. who are great at sports. I saw this hilarious TikTok from an account I follow of someone who um, is transgender and they were trying to play sports and were so bad. And they're like, y'all need to calm down. I have no hand-eye coordination. <laughs> totally. And that's what people forget. And, it, and it's, again, it's sexism and it's, and it's patriarchy and it's misogyny. And also lastly, it's racism all baked mm -hmm. together because the most common people to be attacked for this is black trans girls, right? So that, that intersection, it's called trans misogynoir, right? The intersection of being trans, black, and a woman. Um, and there's a lot going on there, but it's the continued policing of black and brown women's bodies. It's about control. It's about colonialism and patriarchy and all these kinds of things, racism. So there's a lot of things that people miss. A lot of people think focus on about bodies and fairness, destroying women's sports and whatever, but it's really not about any of those things. It's actually about these factors of control, white supremacy uh, and, and racism and sexism, right? So that's like the whole, I, I, there's so much more I could share with you. It would take me hours. No, you already, I'm already sold. I, I'm an <laughs> asshole and I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the main point that I want to share um, is, is that we, we forget that biological differences exist, right? Yeah. And, and when I talk to, especially women athletes, sometimes people are resistant like you, like you were. And then you really like, sit and think about your team. Are there people who are above mm -hmm. six foot? I'm sure there are. It'd be really weird if you had a volleyball team at USC that wasn't had some people over six feet. And they have advantages to a degree, right? But nobody says that's unfair. It's just a biological difference. So consider that. We can also look at the fact, and I want to add this last point, when we look at men's sports, Nobody cares if you have a biological difference. In fact, if you have a biological difference, say maybe you produce half the levels of lactic acid in your body than the average athlete like Michael Phelps does, people call that you are a genetically superior specimen. Mm. But if you're a woman that has differences, it's unfair. And you get disqualified and you get your medals stripped from you like Castro Semenya. Right. So you can look into both of those, but they're, but they're, when men have biological differences, people are like, wow, that person's made for this sport. And then when you get into women's sport, depending on who you are, especially if you are black, especially if you are trans, especially if you look any different from the average, what a woman is supposed to look like in the eyes of white supremacy and sexism, you're considered unfair. Wow. There's so much overlap between all the different oppressive natures of our society. They're that all going back to the patriarchy and colonialism, I'm telling you, everything goes back and you can oh, see God. it, right? And you can, the, all the lines are there. And so this attack that we have on trans athletes right now, that is massive around the country, 68 plus anti-trans sports bills, specifically this past year, it's not about trans people. Trans people are a pawn to continue this, 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 um, this oppression, right? And if you also really look at it, it's a pawn specifically to get people like you. It's the people who are that, that sort of moderate where they're who are like, I support trans people. I support Black Lives Matter. I support all these things, but I don't support trans girls in sports. So I'm going to go and vote on this other side. I'm not saying you're going to go vote the other side necessarily, but it's, it's pulling, right? There is a power pull here, a very tactical, very, very calculated, divisive power pull to pull people who are like, mm, 
on right. trans girls in sports specifically to have them pull over, right? Right. Right. It's true. And as like much as I hate myself when you run that back to me, you know, I really do feel like you're you weren't wrong. And um, it, it's it not is about wild. hating yourself. Also, it's just about recognizing like the, the ignorance. Right. And it's not you're, right. nothing wrong with that. It's, I suppose if you're resistant to me, then something would be wrong with it. But it's really about learning, learning it. And I think that and here's here's why you got played. Everybody says it's about protecting women. Right. So you got played because everybody says, hey, this is feminism, protect women's sports. But the reality is, in, in order to exclude trans women, you have to know which girls are trans. How do you figure that out? You have to test them and test who? Test which one? How do you know? At what point is a girl too fast to be, oh, you're trans, right? To be, yeah. at what point is a girl too tall? At what point is a girl too strong? At what point is a girl too masculine looking, her hair too short to be accused of being too transgender? Right. So right. what happens here is we are legally, legally enforcing the policing of girls' bodies in sports when it's body in sport. We're literally, like legally putting in rules to enforce how a girl's body can look in order to compete in sports, which oh, that is going to destroy women's sport, not the inclusion of transgender women. Yeah. Wow. Skylar, thank you for all that you just shared because. I now feel passionately um, <laughs> about this inclusion. Good. And I'm just really glad to have had this education. I have a lot of athletes who listen listening as well so that we can be out there fighting and and trying to get everyone the basic right to play sports if, if they love and they enjoy sports. And okay. two questions. First of all, so how did it go playing on the men's team? Like, were you <laughs> hanging? Like, what, what um, were you like? I did, I did actually pretty okay. I wasn't as good as I would have been on the women's side, but I, but I, um, I did pretty well. I actually ended up beating, I was the top 13% and top 14.4% or something in my best events of all division, um, all the sport, the, the people in my two, uh, best events in, in the NCAA. So it's pretty cool. I beat 85% of men in my events. Um, oh, let's I'll go. take it. <laughs> I love that. That is so badass. Good job. Um, something last thing here, which I think is the perfect kind of, uh, cherry on top of our conversation. Obviously throughout our talk today, we've gone down a variety of different, like, you know, uh, what would you even call it? We've gone down a variety of different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one of my favorite quotes from you is it's complicated wanting to be transgender but it's as simple as wanting to be happy. You know, these things are, are complicated when we talk about inclusion, but it's also as simple as, want, as just wanting to be happy. So there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of simplicity kind of aligned. Yeah, and I think that is where me having not a lot of knowledge, but trying my best to educate myself, well, I just want people to feel happy and feel respected. And if someone wants me to call them something, you better bet I will call them that. Like, why would anyone not just want others to feel liked, loved, included, and happy. And so I think that as we zoom out of everything and we get out of the nitty gritty and the the people who want to claim this, that, it's like, don't you just want human beings to feel included and feel happy? And I would just really struggle to understand why someone would say no. <laughs> well, the short answer to your question, if, if it, you know, it was rhetorical, but the short answer is because they're unhappy, right? And so my, my, I guess one, one thing to end with here is that if you, if you're listening to this and you don't want me to be happy or you feel resistance, turn it into yourself. What's going on with you? Because the reality is that most people who have resistance to me have some sort of resistance to themselves somewhere that it's, that I am striking up an insecurity within them, something that bothers them. Oh, how can you be a man? So if I don't, you know, I have to be a man my way, whatever. Right. And, and it's, it's not about me. 
right? So if, if you are listening to this and I make you feel something, it's not about me, it's about you. And I encourage everybody to dive into that because that's really where your own happiness will come from, not from me. I love that. If you're projecting, we're calling you out right now. <laughs> um, lastly, would you just share with us um, the excitement around your new book? Because I just cannot wait to read it and get my hands on a copy. And I just want everyone to know your book's coming out. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, I'm really, really excited. My book, it's called Obi is Man Enough. It's my first debut novel. Um, it is a fiction novel. It's about a 13-year-old Korean-American swimmer. Um, so kind of like me, except I'm not 13. Uh, and he's also transgender. And my goal was to really humanize this experience of being trans. Obi is so much more than just transgender, and his story is not centered around his transness. There's so much more about him, but I, but of course, his transness is something that talks is talked about because it's also his life. Um, so I, I wanted really to share just more humanity. I wanted there to be a story about a trans kid playing sports too. I think it's the story that I wish I could have had. Um, and it's sort of an ode to the childhood or the boyhood specifically that I, that I never did. That is so special and probably going to be such a powerful read for so many young transgender athletes out there. So thank you for the book. Thank you for the work that you do for your patience with me today and everyone at RealPod. And I just really appreciate it, Skylar. And I think, you know, like you said before, you don't have to be doing this work, but it is such important work. And thank you. I mean, can't say thank you enough. I'm sure you are constantly doing your own self-care to get your, your yourself back up to fuel. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for, for being so open to, to all the thoughts. And I hope you carry them forward. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week seeing behind-the-scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.